glad to be here with you guys. Um, I'm sorry that we didn't get to meet because of me. I'll, uh, I'll just not go to the doctor next time. Uh, <laughs> just, just kidding. I'm, I'm glad that we didn't meet and we were able to keep each other safe that way and hope we can continue to do that. Um, as we get started, would you please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. As I was preparing this week, I was looking for an illustration that would help us see the absolute and breathtaking wonder and beauty of God's purpose in Advent. I believe this true story that has inspired Christians for hundreds of years will help us more vividly appreciate the saving work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. There was a man named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zizendorf. Say that ten times fast. He was born in Germany in the year 1700. He was a Christian who was zealous to see Christ magnified after seeing a famous painting depicting Christ on the cross. He used his land to help begin a settlement for some persecuted Protestant believers. And after what can only be described as an immense outpouring of the Holy Spirit during a communion service, Zizendorf invited a slave to come and share the need for the gospel among his people who were in slavery. And this sparked one of the greatest missionary movements in Christian history. Out of this movement came two missionaries I want us to consider as we read this text. And I'm reading from an article I read uh, recently about these two missionaries. In 1735, 32, excuse me, five years after the initial outpouring of the Spirit, two Moravian tradesmen, 36-year-old David Nietzscheman and 26-year-old Johann Leonard Dober, became the first missionaries to leave. They heard of the plight of African slaves on the island of St. Thomas in the Caribbean and how there was a spiritual hunger, but they had no one to share the gospel with them. They determined to go by any means necessary, even when they were told they would have to sell themselves into slavery in order to minister among the slaves. As it turns out, when they offered themselves as slaves in Copenhagen, they were laughed at because no one would buy white men as slaves. So they traveled to St. Thomas by working their trades. According to the story that has stirred missionary zeal all over the world for the past 300 years, they stood on the ship departing, looking for what they believed to be the last time into the faces of their loved ones. They raised their fists and cried, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. This inspiring story of missionaries who are zealous to be part of the redemption that God brought to humanity for those who believe. I hope that this can help us picture the saving, redemptive work of God for us. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I want us to consider God's aim in Advent. Why did God send His Son into the world? Why is it an event that we should contemplate and celebrate every year? I want to encourage you, exhort you, and remind you why God the Father sent the Son 
why God the Spirit empowered the Son, and why God the Son obeyed the Father and went. Here's the point of this text this morning. Simply, Jesus Christ came to redeem and adopt sinners. We'll do that by exploring man's predicament, God's plan. Please stand as we read God's Word together. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son, then an heir through God. Thank you. You can be seated. We've not been in Galatians, so I'm going to try to be really brief about the background of this text so we don't just talk about uh, things out of context. Galatians was written by Paul the Apostle uh, to the churches of Galatia. So those who were being deceived by false teachers that before anyone could be saved... They must be circumcised in obedience to the law. In other words, they had to become a Jew first before they could become a Christian. And this uh, is debated whether this is the exact same point um, of contention in Acts 15. But there's another group that was having that same problem in Acts 15, if you'd like to go and study that. Paul refutes this argument biblically by articulating the gospel. And he sums up his argument in Galatians 2, verse 15 and 16, when he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. And it is in this context we read and study and believe Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, which is where we'll be focusing in. This text speaks of God's aim in Advent, and that's what we will consider now. First, we'll look at man's predicament. Man's predicament and our nature. What does this passage say about our nature before our standing before God? What does the verse say? He says in verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law. What does Paul mean by that when he says those under the law? Well, we can look at the context to help us understand, looking into verses that come before and after. So in Galatians 3, we find this same phrase under the law. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, 
imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So what does it mean to be under the law? We are imprisoned. We are held captive, slaves to the law. Romans 3.20 tells us that no man can be justified by the works of the law. Why can't, we sa- why can't the law save anyone? Because we don't merely have a problem of just breaking the law. We have a heart problem. We have hearts that love to break the law. The way God shows us the state of our need and our nature and our heart is by giving us the law. Jeremiah 17, 5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And a little further down in verses 9 and 10, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Our hearts turn away from God and our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Well, God does. He searches our hearts and he knows our hearts and he reveals to us the state of our hearts by the law. God intended the law to reveal the state of our own hearts and our need for God. He wants to replace our stony, cold hearts with a heart of flesh. He wants our brokenness over the law to lead us to Him. Instead, we use the law to compare ourselves to others so that we can boast in ourselves. God God intends the law as a guardian to lead us to brokenness, but we use the law for boastfulness. So what does this text say about our need in our predicament? This reveals itself in how much time my mind spends comparing myself to other people. Do you find yourself thinking about how proud you are of yourself because of something you do that others do not do or because you're not doing something else that somebody does? How do you react when you hear about the sin that's going on in our world, in our nation, in our community, at your workplace or in your home? Does it break your heart or does it make you proud that you're not like them? I find myself more and more identifying with the Pharisee than with the publican. I'm referring to the parable of Jesus in Luke 18 who speaks of a Pharisee who went to the temple to pray and found a tax collector there and said, Thank you, Lord, that I am not like this tax collector. The Pharisee was concerned with the sin of others more than his own sins. But the publican and tax collector couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven because he knew he was a sinner. He was not distracted by the sins of others in comparison. 
He was distraught by his own sin. If we played back a recording of your thoughts this past week, would it sound more like comparison or like contrition? Beloved, I know who I sound like. This week, uh, while I was at work, I was asked if I would be willing to work Sunday morning. I, and I said no. But the reasons I gave came flying at me when I was studying this text. I said no because I work for the church. And I have to prepare songs. And I have to prepare preaching. I work for doing that. I was so quick to draw attention to myself and my righteousness by what I was doing. I didn't have any inclination or desire to explain the amazing work of God and how He has changed my life and how worshiping Him with other believers as He commanded is one of the most important things that I do. I was quick to elevate myself and I was slow to elevate Christ. It was in studying this text that I was reminded of my predicament. My friends, some of us have not yet discovered that predicament. That we have taken the wonderful, beautiful, and glorious gifts of God, and we have claimed them for ourselves, corrupted them all, and clung to the gifts rather than the giver. We have glorified ourselves in our own righteousness rather than glorifying the God of perfect righteousness. In short, I needed to be reminded that I myself needed to be redeemed too. At Christmas time, we give each other gifts. And why do we do this? Because it's a way to express love. Right? But how disheartening is it? To give a gift to somebody and they do not say thank you. They don't acknowledge you. They begin to love the gift more than the giver of the gift. This is our default position before God. He continues to give us breath and life and all good gifts come from Him. But how slow are we to thank Him for those things? Oh, how my soul aches, and I have so much passion and desire to make other people think better of me. Yet at times it's so unnatural to exalt and call attention to Christ that I long for my own glory so much that I am quick to talk about my righteousness among others and so slow to speak of Christ's. How quick I am to be satisfied among my few acts of my own obedience and so slow to be moved by the perfect and selfless, amazing, complete and total obedience of Jesus to every letter and punctuation mark of the law on my behalf. Any person who can listen to the sound of my voice either was or is under the law. Every single one of us needs to be redeemed. We are often blinded by our sin, by the evil one, and by the fallen world to our need to be redeemed. As you celebrate Christmas this year, remember, you need to be redeemed. 
Why? Because you have broken the perfect and good reflection of God's desire for every human to be in this world, the law. He has given the law as a mirror and as a guardian to show us our true nature, which is guilty and wretched and our desperate need, which is redemption. I pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you of your need of Him right now. If God is doing so, please listen to the Word of God, for He knows your predicament, and He has a plan. So now that we've looked at our predicament, let's look at God's plan in verses 4 and 5. See, this predicament has not caught God unaware or unprepared. We see in these verses when God planned it, how God planned it, and why God planned it. So let's read verse 4 of Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. See, Paul tells the Galatians about their predicament, but, and then he says, but. One of the sweetest words in all of the New Testament. We are sinners with wicked hearts, deserving of a rebel's hell, but God sent forth His Son. So when did God plan it, according to these verses? He did so when the fullness of time had come. There's a, a scholar that helps me understand this phrase. I thought it may help you as well. This imagery is like a container being steadily filled until it's full. The implication is of a set purpose of God having been brought to fruition over a period and its eschatological climax enacted at the time appointed by him. So this fullness of time, this word is complete, right? So he is set Time in motion, and he has waited till it's full, till it's perfect, till it's right for him to come. This phrase, according to the CSB Study Bible, indicates that Christ came at the perfect time. Factors made this such a suitable time, including widespread peace. At the time, Rome had conquered everything, and there was peace. There were excellent Roman roads so that the good news could travel everywhere at a good time. And the dominance of one language, Greek, across the empire. So it was easy to communicate these things. By these means, the gospel spread in ways that would not have been possible in earlier times. He sent his son in the fullness of time. It's important to be reminded that God is not the God of deism which is a, where God creates the world and then he sits back on his throne, puts his feet up and lets everything just go. He is not inactive. He's not like he wound up a toy soldier, put him on the ground and just let him march and didn't care about him. No, God knows our predicament. He cares about us so much so that he sent his son. Why didn't he do this right away? Because he was waiting for the perfect time, the fullness of time to do so. So we see when God planned it. What's, let's see how God planned it. He sent Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law. Why born of a woman? That seems kind of obvious, right? 
Duh, he was born of a woman. We don't need to know that little fact, right? If you're born, that's how everybody gets born. But does this phrase remind you of a passage in Scripture? We've read it a few times together during our services. It's Genesis 3.15, which reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is Genesis 3. This is at the very beginning of Scripture and of time. God's plan from the beginning was to send his son. And he promised in Genesis 3 to send the one who would crush the devil's head as one of the offspring of the woman, someone born of a woman. That was God's promise to Eve. And Jesus was born of a woman, just like God promised. Jesus was also born of woman for another reason. And Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We're reminded that because Jesus was born of a woman, he knows what it's like to be human. So we see this seeming throwaway phrase, born of a woman. Um, duh. No, this is important. No phrase in the Bible is extra or superfluous or non-essential. When we read the Bible, every word is important. Amen? So, he was born of a woman, but why under the law? Romans 8, 3 and 4 tells us, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walks not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 3 tells us, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. This is why. To show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we see our predicament through the law. We are not righteous because we have broken the law and deserve the punishment that comes of law-breaking hearts, which is death. But Jesus came born of a woman as a human being and under the law to live a perfect, sinless life. Because he was sinless, he did not deserve to die, for the wages of sin is death, right? That is why people die. But he allowed himself to be murdered on our behalf. Jesus had to be born under the law so that he could live a perfect life. 
and create a perfect righteousness to that law so that we could be redeemed. So why did God plan it? We've seen when he planned it at the beginning of time, how he planned it by sending Jesus born of a woman as a human and under the law to create a perfect righteousness. Why did God plan it? Why did God plan this? Look at the text with me again. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So why did God do this? To redeem us and to adopt us as sons. First, let's look at redemption. This has been called the great exchange. We live a life of disobedience and deserve death and the wrath of God. But Jesus lives a perfect life and faces the wrath of God for us. Now God can grant eternal life to Jesus because he lived a perfect life. And he can grant it to us through Jesus by faith. What about the wrath that we deserve? Jesus takes our sin and the wrath of God that we deserve. We get his righteousness and eternal life. And he gets treated as our sinful lives deserve and faces the wrath of God on the cross. In other words... Jesus uses the precious blood of a sinless lamb to buy us out of slavery to sin. We could not buy ourselves out because our blood is stained with sin. Now, all Jesus asks of us is to put our faith in him and give him the allegiance of our souls. Remember the story of the two missionaries I mentioned at the beginning? They were filled with compassion for the people of the island of St. Thomas. So they were willing as free men to sell themselves into slavery for the people's sake. Mind you, they didn't actually get to do so because the slave traders wouldn't buy them. But that's a wonderful picture of what Jesus has done for us. He loves you so much that he sees you in slavery to the law and sin and allows himself to be treated as a slave so you can go free. Do you see how beautiful this is? That we are God's enemies and he loves us still. That he has died for you still. Even though our hearts are wicked, even though we continually not give thanks to him for all the good things that he gives us, and he still loves us. He saw our need and could not do nothing. Because that's who God is. He is good. So we see that he's come to redeem us, but he's also come to adopt us. Verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Isn't God good? He sent his son at the perfect time, born of a woman under the law, to redeem us. And that's not even it. He also did this so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. There have been many people freed from slavery in human history. And there's a, a quote that's attributed to Harriet Tubman that reads, I was free, but there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land. 
even though she was freed from slavery, no one gave her anything to begin a new life. She was freed, but then forgotten. It is not so with us, brothers and sisters. God has redeemed us to slavery, not to free us and send us on our own merry way. No, not only has he redeemed his former enemies from slavery, he adopts us as sons and daughters. One of my favorite Christian rap songs has this line in it. When have you heard a story about the hero dying for the villain? Could you imagine a story where Superman gives his life to save Lex Luthor? It doesn't make sense. But God has done even more than this. God has made us a part of his family to enjoy all the same benefits that Jesus does as a son. And what are those spiritual blessings of the sons and daughters of God? Well, we read them together this morning in Ephesians 1. Let me remind you. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time. There's that phrase again. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we have been adopted. So let's also see the Trinity here at work in Galatians 4. Read verse 4 with me again. But when the fullness of time had come, God, that's God the Father, sent forth His Son, Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God the Father sent the Son to redeem and adopt us. And we know that we are adopted because God the Father sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And now we can call God our Father. This redeeming and adopting work is done by God the Father, sending both the Son and the Spirit. This was God's aim in Advent, to redeem and adopt sinners like you and like me. So quickly, how should we respond to this text? First, see that you need to be redeemed. This is not a story for other people. This is a story for you. And we so quickly forget that. We forget what um, amazing contrition, what uh, things came over us when we realized that we needed Him. That we had a moment where we understood what He said when He said we are sinful. What He said that we deserve wrath. And we agreed with Him. We repented. We gave uh, we agreed with him and changed our mind. You need to be redeemed. 
God sent His Son, empowered by the Spirit, to redeem and adopt you. I almost missed this when I was studying. I was so focused on the fullness of time and all these other cool things that God has done to make sure that this was perfect. That's not the point. The point is you need redemption. I need redemption. So how do we respond to this? Have you experienced that redemption? Was there a time in your life where your allegiance was shifted from yourself to God? If not, He has made a way for you to be redeemed and adopted. Take this time, respond, and consider your sin and His goodness. How else should we respond? See that your life is in Christ and not your obedience to the law. Romans 8 tells us, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of this body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Hear this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This law is good because it reminds us of our need of Him, and it reminds us how good God is, because all of the things that He has given us in the law remind us this is how God intends things to be. It reminds us that we are good. But remind yourself, you have not been faithful to this law. And Jesus redeemed you while you were a sinner, Romans 5.8. We are to be obedient to Christ. Our allegiance is to Him. Let's not use this law to compare ourselves to others. Let's use it to be convicted and to be thankful that Christ knows my sin even more deeply than I do, and He still loves me, and He still loves you. How else are we to do this? We're to see how the Father sent Jesus in the fullness of time, and He is coming back in the same way. Sometimes it may seem bleak. Is Jesus really coming back? It's been 2,000 years. Well, God has promised that Jesus will return. He promised at the beginning of time that Jesus would come, and He did in the fullness of time. So in the same way, God keeps His promises. If He said His Son is coming back to get us, He is coming back. We need to prepare for that time. We need to be... Um, caring about the same work that he was, that we need to long for people to be redeemed, that people in the community of Eastwood need redemption. That needs to convict us that there are other people who need redemption and it has been provided for them and they may not know. That's why we are here. So let's remember all of these things. Jesus, or God sent his son Jesus, born of a woman born under the law to redeem us and to adopt us. Let us consider those things as we close. Would you pray with me?